What is the one thing that people don't learn about addiction that continues to repeat itself? And if you could change anything about those who are addictive to drugs or those that have come out rehab and making sure they don't have a relapse, what would you share? Well, first off, I'd like to say thank you for having me on your show. Um, the first thing that I would tell them would be to stay connected with people that are in recovery um, <clears throat> so that they could have someone that they could talk to, that they can trust, um, that can help them get through the hard times that they may be going through trying to stay sober. How, how did you end up, what triggered your addiction and at what age? Uh, I was 13 when I started. Started I, uh, what? What was, what was your addiction? Well, I started off um, drinking liquor, and then it kind of escalated. I started smoking cigarettes and uh, started smoking marijuana, and then it just progressed on to um, different drugs. By the time I was 18, I was, um, I was shooting heroin. You know, 35 years is a long time. Have you really conquered all your addictions or do you still struggle? No, I don't struggle. I, at this point in my life and in my recovery, I'm, um, I see myself as a person that, that just doesn't use any mind and mood altering uh, substances. What was the breaking point for you? Well, being homeless, unemployed, unemployable. I had a friend of mine that uh, asked me one time, did he think that we were destined to live like that? And <clears throat> I had to think about it because I never thought about it before. And my answer was, no, I don't think I was destined to live like this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop. I don't know when, I don't know how, uh, but I'm gonna stop. And the week later I was in treatment. But you would admit the drugs that are in the market to the day are far more lethal and dangerous than when you came along. Oh yeah. I would probably be, I probably wouldn't be here if, uh, if I was using what they were using. You know, uh, how long were you homeless? I was homeless, well, it was a very short time, about uh, six months. Was the marketplace forgiving once you face reality and change your behavior? Were you able to find unemployment? Or do you still live with a stigma? I, no, I don't live with the stigma. I was able to um, find employment. I actually was in, got reemployed uh, to my employer who told me when he fired me that I would never work there again. And upon recovery, I just, decided one day I'd just go ask and see if they'd get my job back. I mean, all they could say was no, then I would, then I would know I'd never get my job back. But it didn't work out like that. I ended up retiring from that place. What was it uh, in your family background or your environment that led to so many addictions early on in your life? I mean, 13, you're still a kid, man. Yeah, well, I grew up in a pretty violent environment and I didn't think that I was, um, I didn't think I was supposed to. 
Um, <clears throat> I, I just needed an outlet. I needed something that would make me feel good. And I got introduced to alcohol and it made me feel good. Well, where were your parents? My parents were there. Um, my father drank a lot. Mm -hmm. He was uh, pretty violent. So <clears throat> I didn't want to really stay at home. So I just hung out in the streets. You know, Abe, you're a former prosecutor. I, I know that you're a candidate um, for Congress in Arizona. That's not the reason why we invited you on, by the way. We invited you because you have some experiences along the way to share. When you hear stories um, like Kenneth and you see what's going on in the world today, I mean, here's the guy for 35 years to overcome his addiction. How do you, you know, the prosecution, when do you give people second chances? When do you know they won't go back into that same addiction? What can we learn from the court system as it relates to these issues of addiction? To know how much more dangerous the drugs are nowadays compared to the past. But as a prosecutor, you know, for us at my, the Maricopa County Attorney's Office while I was there, you know, under Arizona law, we didn't actually uh, jail people for their first time use, second time use, or even their third time use. So, you know, they had to come through the legal system multiple times. And a, a lot of it requires uh, outside help, family help, and resources from the community, which a lot of times they lack. So it's really, it's, it's a multifaceted effort right now. But what I really look at as, you know, the drugs that are coming across our border, you know, I think that's the main culprit because so much of the drugs have gotten cheaper in pricing. When I was a prosecutor, you know, it was heroin. Heroin was really a big thing in the legal system, in the courts. I would constantly, constantly see cases come across my desks to prosecute heroin cases. But now, you know, then it eventually moved on to meth. And as the price of meth decreased, then you saw fentanyl rise. And it used to be fentanyl was kind of a more sophisticated drug. It was about $20 a pill, and now you're seeing it about $2 a pill. So as the price of the market uh, determines it because of so many of these addicts, uh, it, it really is heartbreaking because so many people, you know, a lot of folks don't realize they're probably your neighbors who are uh, who have addiction problems with drugs. It's, it's no longer just the inner cities. It, it's really gone into the suburban areas um, and the rural areas as well. So that is what's really shocking. And to see fentanyl on the rise like never before, where it's 50 times more lethal than, than heroin and 100 times more lethal than morphine. So it, it's it's become worrisome because you're exactly right. The, the drugs have become more lethal through time and the cartels and china with with supplying the fentanyl it, it's it's really hurting the american people and i think we have to get a lot tougher on our border because that's where a majority of the drugs come through our southern border talk about how these drugs travel and it's not always necessary that it's people who are seeking these drugs sometimes people sometimes are at parties or hanging with friends and they try to convince them to try this, yeah. try this pill, try this drug, and they have no idea that it's been laced. They have no idea they could have a heart attack, they could die. They just have no idea in trusting others, and sometimes total strangers, because they're into an environment where they're having fun and they're trying different things. But talk about how this drug has traveled and has become so devastatingly destructive and, and a killer. Yeah, you're exactly right. And you know, there were reports last year about the drugs, the fentanyl, coming in and how they were, you know, they were 
uh, labeled like as candy, right? They were they were multicolored, so it was almost targeting uh, high schoolers and children. And there's a lot of accidental drug overdoses here in Arizona. We had just had one tragically just last week where a baby infant was killed um, because they took a f they they got their hands on a fentanyl pill. So. And it's it's easy to digest also, and that's what's really scary because the synthetic fentanyl, you know, I want people to understand when we talk about fentanyl, there's two types. There's pharmaceutical and there's also the synthetic and the pharmaceutical ones, you know, they're not they're not lethal unless it's like in high doses. But what's really scary is what you're saying is the laced fentanyl where it's mixed in with other drugs. And that accounts for about 70 percent of the fentanyl overdoses. So and right now you have a lot of these folks targeting the youth. And I think they're targeting them because it, it you know, it's an, it, it does get them high and it, it, it affects their, uh, you know, for it's almost like a party drug. It's not the same as ecstasy, how it used to be back in the day. We don't see too many ecstasy cases anymore. But with fentanyl, it's kind of a catch-all drug. So that's why it's become so popular. But, you know, they, they do target the young. And that's why when you're seeing so many of the drug traffickers coming across, they, they tend to be young drug dealers, actually. And it's because of the cost of the drugs are so cheap right now. You know, Dr. Donahue is our residential physician. You, you heard the story from Kenneth. You've heard the stories from Abe. Talk about what's in these drugs, why they become so lethal, and why people become so addictive to the point that they cannot live without them. Well, good evening, Armstrong, and thank you for including me in this conversation. And the narrative that Ken and Aiden have provided so far really is a, a perfect segue. You think about this, that, you know, that the hazard of drug use now has gotten so much more than was the case, as Ken pointed out, during his youth. This fentanyl is something that really is a beast of its own design. So fentanyl is a medicine which is called lipophilic. What that means, it goes to every nook and crevice and cranny of your body. It's absorbed very rapidly. We heard Aiden point out that uh, the, the potency of this drug is, is phenomenal. It binds quickly. Lipophilic drugs go to the brain and take up residence there. Fentanyl does it in a matter of seconds. I have been doing heart cath for the last, I'm embarrassed to say, 35 years and have used fentanyl daily. And it's a wonderful drug when dosed in micrograms. So when it's laced, as the prosecutor was pointing out, so oftentimes fentanyl is, is laced with other, uh, with other drugs and it's off by a factor of 100. Okay, so the lacing is... is uh, really uh, a tremendous new source of death. If you think this through, in 2013, there were about 3,000 fentanyl deaths. In 2022, uh, there were 73,000 fentanyl deaths. So ask yourself, what uh, human malady has had that rate of rise? None that we can think of. And it's very much the case, as our prosecutor from Maricopa pointed out, very much the case that there are effectively no barriers to entry at the southern border now. So this is nothing other than a, a kind of invasion that has beset us. Um, it is the case, tragically, as we've heard from both speakers, that very often 
uh, unsuspecting people end up in this in this in this tar pit, and that's because these drugs are often laced with other drugs such as benzodiazepines. Um, and I think probably every one of your viewers tonight, Armstrong, can think of someone in their own immediate sphere of influence. You know, Kenneth, I am curious to know, even though you've overcome your addiction, what toll has it taken on your body and your health and other issues that you will deal with for a lifetime because of your past addiction? Well, my memory isn't isn't that great <clears throat> today. Um, I had some liver problems, but they're they're taken care of. Uh, I'm a veteran, so that that helped that helped with uh, with insurance when I, I first got sober because I didn't have any health insurance. Um, <clears throat> but that that's pretty. I guess I was pretty lucky uh, that I didn't have a lot of health issues as a result of my using. But you work with many people now who are confronting addiction. What, what, what have you learned from them in their struggles? Well, what I've learned is um, a lot of people don't know where to go to get help. And um, like me, myself, I didn't know of any resources that was out there other than treatment centers. Uh, but I need more, we need more than that, than treatment centers. We need to deal with the psychological aspect of, of our addiction and um, <clears throat> the problems that we might've had before uh, we started using. Um, <clears throat> it's just a lot of things that we need to do in order to put our lives back together and um, and trying to find the resources is very hard. You know, Abe, um, um, one of the things that we don't talk about enough when we read and listen to broadcasts and the crimes and just the level of the viciousness and the violence and you say to my God, how could you do such a thing? And what sometimes we don't process is how these drugs impact the minds and your ability to discern oftentimes what you're doing, what it turns you into. Sometimes it's, Abe, you become a monster and don't realize it until the drug has worn off and the damage has been done. Yeah, you're exactly right. I would have cases come across my desk, Armstrong, where the most unsuspecting people came, became addicted to it. You know, sometimes they did you know, start off with pharmaceuticals and they wanted to catch a high, but you know, it's it's not always what you think, right? Where right? I would oftentimes have people who started um, to get addicted in their 30s. So it's not always the case that you start off young. Um, so when, when, you, when you have that ability for this drug to really damage uh, the body, but it takes a much more of a toll, not only on that person, but on the family who has to now uh, spend their time and resources to make sure that they're their family member is getting treatment or you know they have to check on them to make sure they're not dead because it is really tough once they become addicted they are always trying to catch that next high and as a doctor pointed out you know these drugs are getting really aggressive in terms of the the effects on the on the mind that they have but oftentimes people will spend their life savings to catch that high and that's why they end up homeless and 
you know, they will be on the streets and the drugs that they encounter on the streets are the ones that are most likely to be lethal, the ones that are most likely to have the, the fentanyl laced with other, uh, with other pills. So it, it becomes much more dangerous. But that's why I always go back to the root cause. You know, I think, you know, when, when it's heroin, then meth, and then now it's fentanyl, you know, a lot of it, especially with the fentanyl right now, it's coming through our southern border, Armstrong. And to have this border invasion with the drugs that are now going through Arizona, through the rest of the country, really damaging all of these cities, it becomes a big problem. And that's why I'm so shocked that the border situation is what it is and the federal government doesn't seem to be taking action on it because the Mexican drug cartels, they are make this is a huge business operation for them. They're profiting off the expense uh, with the lives of Americans. And it's really disheartening to see, and I hope our government takes action on it. Well, let me give you an opportunity to uh, plug the fact that you are running for congressman in Arizona, because I assume this is a big part of your platform. Absolutely. I mean, border security is one of the top issues here in Arizona because we live with the effects of it daily. That's why I'm running for Congress, and I was just endorsed by President Donald Trump on Friday, so I'm greatly honored for that. But, you know, this is where... Why, why, really why, needs... why are you proud that you're endorsed by former President Donald Trump? Please explain that. Well, under, under his leadership, Armstrong, we saw the world a much safer place. You know, we're seeing what's going on over overseas, whether it's Ukraine or Israel. You know, we saw what's going on here domestically when we actually had a secure border. You know, we didn't have tens of thousands of illegals coming across and all the drugs coming across our southern border. So our, the country was prosperous under President Trump. It's really a, a common sense decision, I think, if people actually look at if your life was better under this administration or the last administration. So once people really sit down and think about how what the future holds for us, I think they want President Trump's leadership back in the White House. Yeah, so that's why I I'm do honored. find it fascinating that people running as GOP candidates find it necessary to tell our national audience that Donald Trump has endorsed me and have my support as if that's the hand of the Pope blessing you and therefore it should be easy sailing to your uh, winning office. But, you know, it's fascinating because over the last couple of years, 95% of the candidates Donald Trump has endorsed has lost. And those well, GOP candidates that did not embrace Donald Trump have won. What do you say to that? In Arizona, he has a perfect endorsement record, at oh, least in the primary, okay. Armstrong. Okay. But, I got you. And okay. it's, you know, quite frankly, I'm, I'm honored because, you know, I, I ran for attorney general last election, and a lot of it had to do with what we're discussing now with the border situation, the drug overdoses, the mental health um, crisis. So now running for Congress, taking that platform to Washington, D.C., you know, fighting alongside some strong conservative fighters will be will be a great honor. Well, I, I think if you win, you'll win because of your record and your integrity and what you've done to make a difference, not necessarily because Donald Trump is endorsing you. That's my point. You know, Dr. Donahue, as a world-renowned cardiologist, because I sort of asked this of Ken, um, can you explain the health impacts of fentanyl abuse on individuals and what medical challenges are posed by this crisis? Yes, you know, Armstrong, um, we were just talking about the border invasion, but I wanna just pose something else to you and our viewers, which is the demand side of this equation. So it's clear to see that the borders are open and this is a gushing torrent of these toxic products. But it's also important that we take a long look in the mirror and ask ourselves, why are we craving all of these things? Why is it that sobriety is no longer 
uh, something that we that we uh, clutch to and aspire to maintain, as Ken, I think, movingly pointed out once he regained his own sobriety. And so part of this is the contagion, that's the drug, but part of it is the host, that's us. And so we as a population are now uh, much more uh, avid consumers of this. Why would that be? And I would argue uh, that uh, as we have abandoned the scriptures, as we have abandoned the premise of children being raised with a married mother and father, as the family has dissolved, all of these, these, these uh, kind of pestilences have found their way into our everyday life. Um, the impact that this has on the body is immediate and enduring. So uh, unlike the other, uh, you know, morphine gets its name from the Greek god of sleep, Morpheus. And it's really just more of a sedative. This is a different product. It has a clear euphoria effect. So it, it creates a very powerful, almost bliss-like experience. It's also a very potent uh, analgesic. It, it reduces pain. So all those things make it just a perfect substance for people who maybe are otherwise longing and empty. And part of our conversation has to be about us what it is we need to do to restore as a population our own sovereignty, our dignity, our self-sufficiency. And I think that means going home, going home to the word of God. Remember, as Peter said, it's important that we be sober and serious. And so those are kind of premises that we've been very willing to abandon lately. And here comes this, uh, along with other uh, uh, pestilences that really reflect to some extent our own weakness. So we need to begin the conversation by saying, let's regain our sovereignty. You know, Ken, did moral striving, a deeper faith and a belief in something greater than yourself, did it play a role and you're overcoming your 35 years of addiction? Yes, it did. Uh, not in the beginning. Um, in the beginning, it was getting around people that had been through what I was going through and have gotten through it in their lives that became better. And getting with them and asking them um, what it was they did, and how did they do it? And trying their suggestions. Uh, my life started changing. And I came to believe that what was happening was God was working in my life through those people. So I did come to believe in, in God um, and come to learn some morals, some values, um, <clears throat> some traditions, and that's what I live by today. You know, you know uh, Abe, you have a strong background in military intelligence. Uh, you know, uh, the president of Ukraine is in Washington, D.C., um, Zelensky. As a candidate running for Congress in Arizona, where do you fall on the issue of more funding to Ukraine? I believe right now what you've been seeing over the past two years of this war where it's gotten us and where it's gotten Ukraine, I think, you know, Washington seems to be, a, a lot of the American people are not sure why we are supporting Ukraine at this moment when there are so many issues going on in our own country, like our wide open Southern border, especially if we're talking about 
protecting the territorial sovereignty of Ukraine. Well, our our border is being invaded, um, clearly, but with the drugs and with the human trafficking and with all the illegal immigrants. So I think we got to get our priorities straightened out right now. So I am not in favor of more funding to Ukraine. I think they need to have a peaceful negotiation. And, you know, I'm, I'm opposed to war and I don't want to see American soldiers go and you know, sacrifice their lives for for, for 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 something that right now when we have so many other issues here at home. You no, know, Dr. Donahue, I'm going to wrap this this provocative segment with you. What are the long-term ramifications with these weight loss medications? And do common medications for high blood pressure carry also long-term risk? So Armstrong, the, the jury is still just a little bit out on the first part of your question. So the two common weight loss medicines that you're talking about have just taken over and they work. But that doesn't answer the question that you pose. What are the long-term implications? So since we don't have long-term experience, we can't uh, with confidence answer the question. Here's what appears to be the case. When you stop Ozempic, you uh, regain the weight that you lost with some dispatch, meaning quickly, and usually about 20% more. So that kind of turns the medicine into a bit of a lifetime premise. There's also a little bit of a concern, and I can't quantify uh, this for you, but there's a little bit of a concern of a rather uh, dastardly disease called medullary thyroid cancer. So it's on the one. So it's like everything else. You pose the benefit that you might incur, uh, as opposed to the risk that you that you experience. And so far, we're on the the blissful phase of that curve, where we're all seeing weight loss. We're seeing. Uh, uh, true early satiety. So leptin is a hormone that gets manipulated and you really are satisfied after just a third of what you ate previously. Antihypertensives, on the other hand, are wickedly underutilized. So if when when rightly chosen, antihypertensive therapy is like water for your desperate thirst. There's nothing but goodness about it when rightly chosen. So most Americans are hypertensive by ideal standards. A recent study as of two weeks ago pointed out that our goal for treating blood pressure should be in the 110 millimeter mercury range. Everybody now think, what was your last blood pressure? One of the things to think about in not being at goal is dementia. So the brain likes to be left alone. It doesn't like to be thumped and bumped. It wants to be in its own sacred space keeping that blood pressure low is a way of maintaining your own uh, cognitive intactness. You know, Dr. Donahue, it's so unusual seeing you dressed like a businessman and not in your physician uniform. It, I mean, sharp, I might add. But look, um, Ken, we wish you well. Uh, thank you so much yeah, for being so open and sharing your story. This week's episode.